transhumanism. More than human. Being together. Collective. Entanglement. Interaction. Becoming. Academia. Friction. Tracing. Crossing the borders. Multiplicity. Mapping. Touch. More than touch. Moments of wonder. Interconnecting. Resistance. Staying with the trouble. Inquiring. Experiencing. Thinking, being, doing, otherwise. Writing as inquiring. Placemaking. Spaces. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Open University's Postgraduate Research Podcast. This is an episode sponsored by the OU Graduate School, whose aim is to provide the Open University postgraduate students with a platform to share their research as well as their experiences. The podcast is therefore not only a learning tool or a medium for students to share their research only, uh, it is most importantly a generative place to help us build a supportive, responsive and listening community among students, which is arguably a critical aspect of any learning community. We are the Posthumanist Collective, and this, is pot, um, and this podcast, as revealed by its title, Weaving, Thinking, Becoming With, Introducing the Posthumanist Collective. Uh, we will introduce our group. We will talk about how and why we have started this group and how the weaving, thinking, and becoming with each other, our PhD experiences and our research led to different positive and productive ways of working and researching in the academia. We will also introduce and enact several key posthumanist and new materialist concepts and modes of inquiry, such as diffraction or the process of thinking with, to provide a window into and start a discussion around these, we would argue, significant theories. Moreover, we will also talk about what posthumanist new materialist concepts do for our daily struggles in academia and personal life at times of a pandemic. And how these concepts can be harnessed towards rebuilding and rethinking what next in relation to academic career and personal life. The following content therefore engages, entangles and things with posthumanist and new materialist theories, but represents our own views and understandings, which are not Open University's official position. Um, so, hello everyone. Uh, hi, Emily, Donata, Carolyn, how are you? Could you introduce yourself, please? Petra, thank you so much for that brilliant introduction to today's podcast. Um, we're so thrilled to be here together with you. Um, my name is Emily. I am a second year student, so I'm the baby of the group. Um, and uh, I am researching the phenomenon of fun in learning through um, gathering children's stories of fun and learning in their classroom. I'll be working with nine and 10 year old students, uh, pupils at school in primary school in England. And I work with the Rumpus Research Group at 
uh, Wells, um, which is an interdisciplinary group of researchers looking at this idea of fun and learning across different concepts. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Petra. I'm so happy to be here with you today. My name is Donata, and I'm a fourth year student at the Doctorate in Education here at the Open University, but I'm also working at King's College, um, where I am a program director working with language education and second language learning. And my, my study, my research, focuses on language teachers' professional identities, what I call invisible stories or nomadic identities. And uh, I also position myself within uh, the data. I'm part of the research and I co-investigate with my co-researcher the notion of nomadism and nomadic identity that I will explain a little bit uh, further on. And besides working in academia, I'm also a psychoanalytical psychotherapist and I employ some of the techniques that I learned in my psychotherapy training, also in collecting and analyzing data and in working with humans and non-humans as, as part of the research. And uh, back to Carolyn. <laughs> Thanks, Donata. Uh, so I'm Carolyn and I've recently completed uh, my PhD, not at the OU, but at Edinburgh University. Um, but the reason that I'm involved in this group is that I work for the OU as an academic in um, in ECIS, in the, in the School of ECIS, um, but I'm based up in Scotland. Um, so my project worked with music student teachers and their course leader, and the whole premise of the project was that we explored teaching as an improvisatory act, and that plays against some of the traditional views of teaching and learning and the role of the teacher. Um, but we didn't explore it just as improvising as a musical term, but it was a transdisciplinary project where we played with improvising as a verbal, physical, a playful and biological and theatrical as well as musical term. Um, and so I um, got entangled with posthumanism and um, and this group became a, a really important part of my um, PhD story and also the work that's come from that and my continuing interest in um, posthumanism. Uh, my name is Petra Vatskova. Uh, I am a fourth year PhD student. I have just um, actually submitted my thesis, so yay! <laughs> my um, my research, uh, or in my research, I, I engage feminist new materialist theories, and what I do, I research or observe processes of social inclusion and exclusion around art making activities in earlier settings in a very specific uh, small community in Czech Republic. Uh, and all these settings, they work um, with historically uh, marginalized groups and together with children and families in these settings, we have um, we have been uh, collecting data, making videos and, and really trying to um, understand what educational justice means beyond uh, really just the traditional uh, understanding of social inclusion. Now let's talk about uh, our group, the Posthumanist Collective. Um, and uh, let's say a little bit uh, about it to the listeners uh, and also what it means to us. Wh why are we, uh, you know, meeting and um, and sort of also um, centering it around the posthumanist theories? I think this space was uh, was a very important space for, for all of us that was started more or less 18 months ago. 
And it's very interesting that we don't remember exactly when it started. We were trying to brainstorming and try to remember also for the for the podcast, but we couldn't remember exactly when it started, which is very interesting and fits perfectly within posthuman thinking when there is no clear beginning or ending to, to a project, but it's more a, a rhizomatic entanglement of us being together. And this group for me was very, very important. We met regularly online because we, our group was, we think we started a few months before the COVID or more than a few months probably before the COVID. But during the COVID, uh, this space was uh, um, a very uh, important space to be and to be ourselves and also to be uh, within our research journey and to share experiences, but not only. And um, it's a space in which diffraction was very important and diffraction was is uh, a way of thinking differently and uh, to allow space for um, emerging thoughts to to come alive and to be shared. And, and then from that, maybe more uh, academic writing would would emerge uh, in later on for each of us. Mm, I, I wanted to say why it was important for me from the beginning as well. Uh, First of all, finding a supportive group of people. I think that's, you know, so the premise of this podcast is also about the community. It was important to me to find this kind of supportive network uh, of people who also at the same time think about or have similar commitments to mine. And so this kind of support um, group that it was the beginning, but then also it, it sort of changed towards what Donata was just talking about, that this kind of diffracting ideas and diffracting means is thinking together and then bringing the thoughts somewhere else and being comfortable with it. And diffracting also means entangling different things together. So not just sort of the academic, the research ideas, the concepts, you know, the things that you normally struggle with, the difficult theories, but also the personal, which is something we often talk about. It becomes both formal and informal space when you can entangle these things together, because in reality, we find these things matter and they are important for research and for thinking mm -hmm. and I think that that's quite interesting because it 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 is it is about the post-humanist space that um you know we are working with a philosophy and a set of literatures and methodologies that are very much still being made and they're very iterative at this stage because it's, it's a kind of a newly developing you know it's gaining momentum but we're working in spaces where it isn't the norm there aren't large amounts of people around us that are working with these these ideas and in this way and so that entanglement for me was particularly important because I think um, Taylor describes posthumanism as a constellation of lots and lots of different ideas and methodologies and literatures. And actually hearing each other and the way that we pulled that constellation in different ways and we use different literature, it made me much more aware of my own positioning. And it really helped in my PhD viva, by the way. Um, but also um, but also just just that that entangling, that diffraction, that that understanding of the field and the philosophies as they emerge, because they are they are still emerging. They're always emerging. So that that was really important for me. I think the only thing I'd add um, to this part briefly is the way that being in a space that cuts across years in the sense that we are all at different mm. moments in our PhD yeah. journeys was really valuable for me because, um, you know, our past and our futures 
uh, if you look at it through the post-human lens, are all very much in the present moment. And so being in a group, in a small group, where we are all at different moments of a shared journey brought that aspect of it to life, mm. you know, and made it much, may, helped us um, have a sense of becoming researchers as opposed to being fixed in one contained moment in time as a and that was really useful especially with the pandemic and COVID and everything else that we were going through. Yes and to that I would ask also that our space is crossing across different disciplines so we, yeah. we what keeps up together is the the philosophy we are working with which is the post-human thinking and philosophy and then of course we found and explore other commonalities that we have but we didn't start with the group because we have a common discipline it's just because we mm -hmm. embrace this way of thinking differently within academia mm -hmm. and i also maybe it's you know maybe it's a side point but i to coming back to that supportive network i i also have experienced that it's really difficult to actually talk about posthumanist theories because they seem to stand on the outside often and uh you know, being within a group is for me was also gaining the confidence to actually be able to respond to the way I was being challenged often in conferences or in discussions. And uh, that was very important because finding a space for posthumanist theories to exist within traditional acad academia, I think it's quite difficult because it does not really um, it actually pushes against traditions, you know, it challenges it and and therefore it's sometimes difficult to make it coexist or to make it work within academia. So this was a little bit about the posthumanist collective. We will now discuss some of the concepts that we have talked about in the past uh, podcast introduction um, where we did our chase the concept exercise. And we will develop uh, we will develop on these uh, and relate relate them to some of the experiences we have had so far. So for our discussion today, I'm going to pick up a word that you will have heard at the beginning of our podcast, and the word is multiplicity. So what I wanted to think about is what does it mean being multiple as a parent during a pandemic? Because as a PhD student, I was working throughout the pandemic, no for long, no rest. And in reality, I would say it was mostly work because when I was not doing my research, I was homeschooling my five-year-old, thinking of activities for my son to fill his days while fighting to find ways to keep him connected to friends and family. Also taking care of, or at least being sensitive to everyone's mental health and well-being. Uh, cooking and cleaning uh, more than ever since we were essentially not leaving the house and really doing our weekly shop every Friday at nine o'clock at night. So overnight, the roles I had to juggle and I would also have, uh, I would also add masterfully execute became very multiple. I became a teacher, psychologist, a carer, a cook, a professional Lego builder, and I didn't know how to do most of them. And I didn't feel comfortable with many of them. So for example, my son was playing doctor a lot at the time. It seemed that he was trying to understand what coronavirus means to him. And I was not really sure how to start that conversation without frightening him. And there were many other of these instances of struggle like that for me. But schooling was the most difficult because I felt pressured to perform specific teaching tasks 
and enact homeschooling to match exactly the school's expectations. While I was not really sure what those even are. So late at night, I was preparing props, uploading videos for teachers to see the progress my child is making. I was also constantly asked to make videos of my son performing his learning while he did not really want to be recorded at all. So I came up with 101 hacks to make recordings my son was actually comfortable with. To make learning during a pandemic lockdown to be a happy and positive experience, I have to say, seemed at the time an unsurmountable task. So I started realizing that to raise a child, we are told no longer requires a whole village, but a single parent or a single family unit. This kind of multiplicity that parents are asked to enact for me became very clearly linked to the neoliberal understanding of human capital that emphasizes a development of multiple individual competencies in support of neoliberal agenda, which is, you know, attainment and ultimately contribution to an economic growth. But this is a discourse that is inherently unjust because parents who do not or cannot conform to this normalized and also universalized understanding of parenting are demonized as inherently immoral and blamed for perpetuating their own disadvantage or at least lack of success and that of their children. So this is when I started writing the findings and discussion um, chapters in my thesis and looking through some of the recordings I made with children, practitioners and families from various earlier settings in a small town in Czech Republic around their art making activities and events. And during these events, multiplicity was at times actually enacted differently. Multiplicity around these events was closely connected to creativity and proximity and was more than the neoliberal plurality in which multiplicity is treated as cumulative human capital. Multiplicity became an ontological phenomenon that Braidotti says is a qualitative shifter rather than merely a quantitative multiplier. So thinking about multiplicity from this feminist new materialist perspective as a process of becoming with others around me, changing together with them and entangling, helped me push back and destabilize the normal framings of multiplicity as a human capital that only intensifies parenting and pushes parents into being a teacher, carer, psychologist, artist, gardener, cook, all at the same time. So instead, what it helped me to do is to stay in the moment to really be part of interactions at the moment and open to change. Rather than pressuring myself to be knowledgeable about mental health and well-being strategies and practices, for example, I sat and played with my child and responded honestly to his questions. I also came back to these questions if I felt they needed more clarification or more discussion. I stopped pressuring myself to be the best in all these roles. And instead, I started thinking what these roles means to me. I started to negotiate, push and pull and entangle with the boundaries of these roles and started making new ones that better suited me. So for example, I let my son record his own learning when he felt like it. We also made funny videos to learn more about what making video could mean besides being a performance of learning. 
we deleted videos we didn't we didn't like and we made pictures if we didn't feel like making videos would work or we just didn't send the videos in for the homework of that day we also spoke to teachers about how difficult it is for my son to perform in front of a camera we extended expanded and questioned and became with the video recording with the camera with the teachers with our learning and i think at that point it became more productive and a bit less scary and also a little bit more fair at the end that's a lovely story petra and um and i just wonder you you'll hear maybe through mine as well which is so closely linked it's very interesting i've used a different <laughs> yeah. starting word but i wonder how much posthumanism is making us all feel a little bit more rebellious against some of those structures because i'm going to talk about not 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 handing homework in during the pandemic and um, <laughs> taking taking the idea of what learning is in a very different way so, so that's where i i've gone with my story so so my story is about the idea of making with, and it, it links very closely with what Donna Haraway calls Sympoasis, where nothing is self-made. We all make with materials, ideas, bodies, experiences, feelings. Um, and that's a very different view from um, sort of more um, neoliberal ideas of making, where it's all about human at the, the, at the top of the, uh, the apex, imposing our will onto materials, imposing form onto the world. Um, so, so yeah, this idea of making with, you know, it, it's, it's something that was um, really, it, I lived that research idea during the pandemic. It made it more visceral and explicit because we weren't able to impose ourselves onto the pandemic and say, no, actually, this is how the world needs to work. And this is how the virus needs to behave. And this is how our children need to learn. We couldn't, we just couldn't because the world was so topsy-turvy. And so it made us have a different relationship. Um, and I think that was really important, not only for myself to realise that in a very lived way, even though I was playing with the theories at the time for my PhD, but it also, it was really important for my son and daughter, who were six and ten at the time, to understand that, no, we, we have to respond to, we have to make with what is happening around us. We can't always be in control and pretend that we're in control. Um, so... My project, you know, I talk about the fact that it was with music student teachers and I, I use the term explored. You know, we explored the idea of teaching as improvising. But what I really mean is that we made that idea. We make with that idea because it wasn't there already before we arrived and had ideas and things in it that we needed to excavate and bring to the surface and report on that. That wasn't what we were doing. We were making the idea together of teaching as improvising and making with it in our professional, in our personal lives, across and between the project and, and real life. Um, there was no boundaries. So at the time I was talking about improvisatory play because it was coming from a place of, of working with and playing with my very young children. Um, but then it shifted into this idea of making with. So um, my story is about something called Yeasty Beastie. So um, I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a really um, bad shortage of yeast. And no one knew whether we were going to be able to get any for weeks and weeks at a time. And, and it also kind of highlighted concerns about more widespread food shortages. And, and it was a really scary moment. And we all felt it as a family. And living up here in the northeast of Scotland, it had a geographic implication as well, because 
It was about, you know, how was food distributed across the country and where were there going to be more possibilities to get food. Um, and, and so we had discussions about food as a family with my children and how it arrives at supermarkets and, and knowledge or lack thereof of, of local farmers and what they were able to grow and provide for us if we needed it. Um, and also what we could grow in our own garden. Um, so there was all this sort of vulnerability going on as a family unit that we'd never experienced before. It was a shift and we we couldn't just learn our way out of it using textbooks. It, it had to be something much more um, local and experienced than that. So as a family, we were used to making bread, but we did rely solely on those little foil seal packets of dried yeast as the magic ingredient. And so when that wasn't there, when the shelf was empty, it led to all sorts of questions about where it comes from, who produces it, what can we do if we can't get um, yeast? So like many, many families across the country and across the world, um, we made sourdough starter and this was our first time ever making sourdough starter. Um, and I realised that this was very much led from my children's inquisitiveness about what was going on in the world, that this was an, a direct interaction with the virus and the situation we found ourselves in. And the fact that we were at home during the day and we had time to make bread in this very, you know, lengthy process, you know, it, it was weeks getting it set up and then, then making the bread itself. And during that time, we did jam jar experiments to see how the starter worked. And we blew bubbles in soap to think about the different gases in the process. We observed it. We listened to it. Who knew that yeast bubbles like that and they hear it? Um, we smelt it. And living in the northeast of Scotland, there's a whiskey distillery in our village. And the children in smelling the starter dough immediately said, oh, it smells like the distillery because obviously it's all about fermentation. So they made, you know, making these really visceral, explicit local links. Um, we created photo journals of it. And then obviously once it was ready, we made bread and, and we ate it. And we continued to look after this starter, which is a living thing. And in a time of no social contact and all of our family being the other end of the country, um, it became part of the family. And my son would ask uh, in the afternoon when we'd done other things, he would ask, is it time to feed Yeasty Beastie, which is what we started calling this thing. So Yeasty Beastie gave us loads of bread, but it was a living, breathing reminder of the fact that we had made something together out of the situation. It, 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 was, it became with us, but we became with it. It was literally a nourishing relationship. It was this interaction. And that sort of making with, you know, it seems very like, you know, nice story. But what does it do? You know, what did it do to my research? Well, the thing was that I was writing my research. You know, I was writing my PhD at the time. I was writing, um, thinking about sort of the writing up stage in inverted commas. Obviously, you're writing the whole time. Um, but it actually created a different type of movement. It got me thinking about in my thesis, how can I write what is an entangled, exploratory, iterative, open, threaded, messy process? You know, my, my PhD was a bit like making Yeasty Beastie and learning all about the processes involved because it was completely interconnected with loads of different things. And it was really, um, I felt really strongly at the time, it was important to maintain that messiness. So I actually changed how I wrote. And as a result of changing the, the structure of my thesis into something more messy, 
um, it's got me in interested in the idea of performative writing and what writing can do to set things in motion, a bit like the lack of the silver foil packets set in motion a whole load of different explorations. And it's that movement, that motion of a different type of research and a different type of relationship um, that, that fascinates me about post-humanism, where research is a little bit like Easty Beastie. It, it lives and it breathes and it's part of us and it nourishes us. Um, so I, I hope you can see the connections, Petra, because I feel like our stories are very entangled with each other. <laughs> yes, I love the Easty Beastie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Petra, and thank you, Caroline. Your story are, is fascinating, Caroline. I hope Easty Beast is still alive. <laughs> just, just. <laughs> in these resurrecting and feeding. <laughs> but it's alive in my mind, and that's part of posthuman thinking. Now, Easty Beast is part of my thinking as well, and of our collective thinking. And um, I, uh, the concept I chose is it's in between your two concepts and it's very close actually to Petra because it's the concept of uh, nomadic identity or nomadic subject, which I um, draw from Rosie Braidotti and particularly from a book which is uh, called Nomadic Subjects from 2011 and also from Donna Haraway Situated Knowledge. And um, the main idea is, is the concept of fluidity and uh, the concept of subjectivity as multiple, but not multiple in, in the sense of different layers adding up to one uh, substantial subject, but multiplicity as Petra described as, as a varied entangled network of different identities and different way of being. So subjectivity is um, some, it's a process of negotiation in between different ways of being, different uh, ways of expressing oneself between different semiotic and lived experiences that cross the boundaries, the physical boundaries of space, of time, but also of uh, emotions and, uh, and spirituality as well. As I described earlier on, my research is on language teachers' professional identity, including my own one. And, um, you know, I started my research journey investigating the notion of language and as how language is present everywhere and how we construct the world through language. And then slowly moving across posthuman thinking, I moved away from the notion of language and, and embracing this notion of nomadic identity, uh, starting from the concept that language teachers cross many different territories because they move in between different countries. And uh, most of them, like myself, teach also in different institutions. So the concept of nomadic identity and multiplicity of professional identities crossing physical and spatial boundaries but then the research slowly moved into different territories and uh, which prompt a really a nomadic thinking of the world and a nomadic thinking of research itself, a crossing also between the boundaries of the professional and the personal. And uh, I, in the research, I co-investigated this notion of the nomadic identity of language teachers with 10 co-researchers, which uh, more traditional are called 10 participants which work together with me in the same department. And they come from different parts of the world and uh, different ages, different genders and, and so on. And um, 
and uh, with them uh, we work together and that is linking with the Caroline concept of working with. We working together with the concept of nomadic identity on the border of many physical, symbolic, disciplinary territories and on, on the concept of deterritorialization as conceived by Rosie Bradotti, which is a move away from unity, stability, and uh, embracing relationality, multiplicity, uncertainty in the mapping of, of new territories. And uh, within these, there is also my own journey as, as a researcher. So my research journey has also been nomadic, has also been characterized by this notion of movement, of deterritorialization, and of nonlinear progression in, in the becoming an academic and a scholar. I start my research embracing post-structuralism as my field of inquiry. And later on, I, in the research journey, I encounter post-humanism and new materialism as ontological, epistemological and methodological paradigms within which I position myself as a researcher. And my journey, as the journeys of my colleagues here, has been messy, a bit like the East making, has been unlinear and characterized by continuous zigzagging between different territories and between different ways of being with my research and with my co-researcher in a puzzle of different concepts rather than in a smooth linear thinking from A to B. And the concept I was playing with were the concepts we, we lay out at the beginning of this podcast, like assemblage, resume, affect, embodiment, creativity, becoming, transformation, and others, which are at the core of my thinking and of my journey. And becoming a researcher has been for me an embodied and lived and unstable and empowering experience that cross the boundaries of also many physical territories, because in this journey I had to, to move a few times between different countries and between different languages. And it has been an act of empowerment that I fully embrace, but also an act of marginality, because I always felt at the margin, at the margin of academia, at the margin of writing, at the margin of thinking, at the margin of doing research, and at the margin of being a researcher. And, and, and also during this journey, uh, COVID happened and this post-human group was, uh, was supporting me in the, in the process of thinking through COVID. And I was very um, unlucky, I don't know if it's the correct word, but uh, COVID struck me very deeply. And during the, the last months, I lost my brother due to COVID. And this had a huge effect on my thinking. And I was able to share this loss and to be supported by my colleagues here. And, and rather than avoiding bringing the loss into my thinking, what that made now, and that now I'm in the process of uh, starting to write up for my uh, dissertation, I've tried to bring this loss alive in my writing. And I, I am dedicating a chapter to my brother, to the loss of my brother and what it meant for me. So that is the becoming of the research and the entanglement we are all together with. Thank you. Donata, I don't know about the others, but I wow. I have goosebumps. Yeah. yeah. All over. It's almost like he summoned your brother into this space with us just in that moment. And so... Um, I can only begin to imagine how powerful that will be in your dissertation and in your writing and in between the lines 
Um, and we spoke earlier about this idea of the group of our collective as being a diffraction in and of itself. And I hope that these conversations and these stories that we have brought together really illustrate that to mm. you, our listeners. I still have the goosebumps <laughs> running up and down my arm, um, Donata. And, you know, throughout our meetings, we always arrive to this space lightly flustered, you know, kind of like windswept by life, by whatever is happening around us and kind of unsure and could we fit it in and could we make it? But somehow by the end of our meetings, we always feel um, so nourished, right? And that that very visceral sense of being together, being so valuable and how we could so easily pass these moments by and not experience them. I think this past year, this group has really made that um, visible to us. I'm also struck by um, how all of your stories tell of um, a problem, a challenge, a tragedy, transforming from a sense of loss and emptiness to something generous generous and generative and productive and I think that is the beauty of the post-human literature and the post-human experiment in and of itself. Uh, the concept I'm bringing in today links to this because it is the concept of friction and if you think of friction in the literal sense you will think of um, two bodies coming together and rubbing in different direction and generating heat right? Generating energy that wasn't there before. And all of your stories have been about situations coming together, bodies coming together, um, global context affecting private lives, which then um, rubs, right, in a way that is uncomfortable at first. And then there's a heat that is generated. And what do we do with that heat, you know? And that Donna Haraway staying with the trouble um, is, is really relevant again and again throughout our conversations. So Anat Singh talked about friction in her writings. It's come up again and again. Um, she describes it as the awkward, unequal, unstable and creative qualities of interconnection across difference. Today in our podcast, we have come together bringing our personal lives and our institutions to understand and narrate our lives differently. And this is very much what this idea of friction talks about. And it's the idea that this um, generative interference is productive and it's worth it's worth staying with and paying attention to, attending to. So a focus on objects and subjects can hide that gener generative creativity and discomfort at the sites where people, ideas, practices and politics come together. Anat Singh argues that cultural objects and subjects are not fixed but made within this friction, made and remade within this friction of worldly encounter. A sticky materiality of practical encounters, she says, which I think we've lived through in our group so many times. 
Friction allows us to draw attention to the unpredictable heterogeneity of worlds coming into being and the potential, right? In your moments, the world hadn't shifted, but you shifted within the world, right? Creating a different experience that unlocked possibilities that weren't apparent before. And I think it is useful to have these literatures and theorists and experiments to connect with, to make these connections so that we aren't alone with this discomfort. Um, when we talk about friction, we also talk about that experience of working with post-human approaches that Petra, you talked about earlier, you know, of the vulnerability and risk of bringing this approach into a world um, that is very comfortable uh, working with um, universal concepts, agreed terms, you know, frameworks that um, are understood across different boundaries and di across different spaces. And so that's something that really this group has also been a space for us to do, to talk about how we, um, how we can experiment with bringing these ideas not only within our group, but also beyond the group, right? To connect with the work that is the wonderful work that our colleagues are doing, not only in the OU at the at, in Edinburgh, but across you know across different disciplines to um, reimagine the world and do research differently. Because doing research differently isn't only uh, aim and goal of post-human approaches, right? There, there are many colleagues not adopting post-human approaches. So, so I think that's that's a great thing to be able to to talk about how we build those bridges with um, other communities as well. So, I think to to close up our podcast today, what I'd like to propose is um, to leave our listeners with a few questions. So we were talking, um, what we were talking about and what we were thinking about a lot is how to actually close off this uh, podcast and, uh, you know, what we want to do with it. And we were talking about how we want to actually extend it out into the um, into the community towards our listeners. And, you know, we wanted to leave you um, with some proposals or maybe questions and to also have a space where you could answer. So we established uh, an email address. And as I will now say it correctly, it's posthumanist dot collective at gmail.com but you will be able to read it actually um, as part of the podcast introduction um, where you can email us or you know send us any ideas you want to engage with us contact us because we're really happy to you know hear feedback I mean we're not here to you know be experts we are here to to talk and to discuss and you know to share ideas so we'll love to hear from you so to start it off and um, and ask my question um, that relates to what I was talking about earlier is I wonder what roles do others enact in their life that they are not necessarily comfortable with? How do you end up living and embracing the multiple you in ways that are not harmful, but rather productive and affirmative? And I, I would add to that, um, Petra, is that how if if you identify the way that you're living multiplicity you know multiplicity then how do you bring that into the research how do we stop research being a bounded box and let that you know as we've heard in all our stories today how do we let that personal interact and be generative in the research spaces 
I would agree, and my, my question is how to, to, to validate the personal, how to give voice to the personal within academia, and also how to write differently, and maybe, you know, how to experiment with, with different way of representing um, academic writing and uh, bridging between the personal and the academic. Mm. Uh, so I'd like to invite our listeners today to um, think about their own data, either in their current project or in a past project, and to think about a moment that perhaps didn't make it to your core um, analysis and discussion, but that struck you and stayed with you somehow. And, you know, what is it, just to spend a couple of minutes just to think, what is it about that moment that held your attention? How did it call to you? And uh, we'd love to hear about that. Friction. Multiplicity. Becoming with. Making with. Staying with the trouble. Embracing. Becoming. Entangling. Resisting. Body without organs. Diffracting. Interference. Encounter. Nonlinearity. Relationships. Multiplicity. Time, space, matter. Interactions. In place. In space. 